Thank you, Katie and Kate listeners, for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is Meet in the Middle, reflecting on 2023 with Benta Berklin. Benta, are you there? Yes. Hi, yep. Benta. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Did you have a good, good break? I know you did a little traveling, so... How's that going? Yeah, it's been good so far. I made it through DIA, so that's no small feat. <laughs> that's good stuff. Um, so, again, thanks for joining us, Benta. Um, Benta has been an award-winning journalist for Colorado Public Radio since 2018. Prior to that, she spent 10 years reporting on the Colorado State Capitol for the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative and KUNC. In 2017, Benta was named Colorado Journalist of the Year, by the Society of Professional Journalists, or SPJ, and she was awarded with a National Investigative Reporting Award by SPJ a year later. She's also won an Edward R. Murrow Award in 2015 and has also worked as a research analyst for the U.S. Department of Justice. There are more awards uh, out there that I'm not mentioning, but suffice it to say that Benta, perhaps more than any other journalist, uh, has given me a great appreciation and respect for journalism as a profession and has inspired me to be more informed, a more informed citizen, a more conscientious leader, and a more hopeful person. It's truly an honor to have you as my guest today, Benta. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I understand you can join us for the first half, so thank you very much. And thanks for being willing to share your time and expertise with me and Katie and Kay listeners. Um, okay, let's dig into the show. For the last show of the year, I thought it would be good to reflect on what we've discussed and hopefully learned in 2023. The show's title is Meet in the Middle, but the intent is not to coerce everyone into the middle. It's about the criticality of visiting the space in the middle, uh, as appropriate with genuine curiosity. No matter what side of the aisle you are, no matter what your perspective is, one of our top priorities must be to be a more thoughtful and engaged citizen of our community if we're going to make progress or at least address the enormous challenges we face as a society right now. And I'll just throw in there that recently uh, I listened to a debate. Uh, there's a podcast called Open to Debate that I listen to quite frequently. And they were discussing, uh, will, the world, will the future have abundance or not? And it was interesting during that debate, there really was no debate on the possibilities in front of us, that there's, there's hope and um, confidence that the, the future can be bright, but there was also no debate on the challenges that are in front of us in order to achieve that abundance, if that's what we're searching for. So I think that to be thoughtful uh, in this in this world and to um, um, and to achieve what what these debaters thought were possible, um, I think it means being curious and intellectually humble in the collective search for truth and to engage 
to speak fully, freely, and without fear. So that's part of what we try and do on Meet in the Middle, and I thought we'd reflect on how well we've done uh, over the 2023. Um, but I think doing those things I spoke of has um, has become increasingly difficult in Carbondale and beyond. So uh, that's one of the things that we hope to talk about today is um, what's working and what's not. Um, so Benta, I know this is a loaded question, um, but I was hoping you could give us a, a perspective on all things, or not all things, but your perspective on what's happening statewide and this, and this idea of uh, being thoughtful and curious and intellectually humble um, and just how, how this year has gone from that perspective in, in the state house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, definitely from the reporting I've seen, the deep divides we face as a country, I don't think that's lessened at all. It seems like it's widened a little bit and increased. And I, I do, I feel like I have the privilege of getting the front row seat to, to a lot of that just because covering the state house, covering state politics, the impact of policies, I do get a chance to talk to people from all walks of life, whether it's lawmakers, policymakers, everyday Coloradans, and people with such drastically different beliefs and ideas about the world and hearing what they think about the state of the country, of of Colorado, just politics in general. I was recently, not too long ago, in northeast Colorado in the Eastern Plains, and I was doing a profile on the reddest part of the state politically. And it is the Eastern Plains. And one of the men I interviewed, he said that he didn't know any Democrat other than a cousin who he is friends with, so they don't talk politics. But the community he lives in, everyone's very conservative, very pro-Trump. He doesn't like how blue Colorado has become. And he said something, you know, we hear it in the national media. He didn't He didn't say civil war exactly, but he's advocating for a peaceful divorce. I don't know that, how that would happen. We're poor parts of counties would separate from the, the redder parts of counties. But wow. um, I think depending upon where you live in the state, people are somewhat isolated in hearing a lot of other perspectives or knowing people with different perspectives. And that, that can sometimes be bridged among families and things like that. But it, it seems like a lot of people are very, very dug in on what they think at this moment in time. What, what do you think he meant when he said a peaceful divorce? <laughs> I really didn't know. Cause I, I don't know. I guess some divorces can be peaceful, but I don't even know if a divorce is typically that peaceful. So there isn't really a way to to do something like that. I think there's a sentiment, especially along the Eastern Plains, is just they want to be left alone. They don't want government intrusion, and they feel... Democrats at the state capitol in Denver are kind of imposing their will on other parts of the state, especially rural communities. So I think it was touching a little bit on that rural-urban divide. But you, maybe you were touching on this when you talked about the counties. You think that his desire is to is to really split maybe the state or just counties into so that they can just govern themselves and not interact with the more bluish aspects of the state. I think that's right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Do you think he was serious about that, or do you think it was more just uh, the state of his his emotions of how things are going? 
I think it was probably more the state of his emotions. Good. You know, if you went through logically on how that would actually happen, I asked not feasible. So, I, I think it was more of the concept of just sure. wanting to be separated from parts of the state they disagreed with, and if you know, people are multi generations living in Colorado, they don't want to move, but. Uh, I, I talked to quite a few people in that part of the state that if they could, they would move to Wyoming or move to Florida or move to a state that aligned more with their political views. And I think we're seeing that nationally, too. You are seeing some people move various places. And same thing with someone in a red state moving to a bluer state. Mm-hmm. I ask, not that I'm asking you to be a psychologist and read this person's mind, but just to try and get a better understanding of just how strongly people feel. And I think your comments imply that People feel pretty strongly that that um, um, it, it sounds like anyway that uh, uh, there's less tolerance for uh, opposing viewpoints. I think that's true, and especially a lot of younger people that I talk to, they said they don't even like to follow the news too much because it's so polarizing, so stressful, just for their own mental, personal health. I think it could be a lot of people, but I've definitely noticed it with the younger generation that they're just trying to kind of avoid the news in general a little bit. Hmm. Do you think the younger generation is wanting to avoid the news because they want to, they don't want as much divisiveness or is it vice versa that they're they only want to they want their echo chamber? That's a good question. Some of the people I've interviewed didn't like the divisiveness and the negativity. Okay. And so they that was one particular thing that they they did found troubling things were kind of so angry and negative and they they just didn't want that much of that in their lives but I'm, I'm sure there's a variety of perspectives on it and at the state house my perception um three hours away is that our our state legislature has always performed a little bit better than uh, our the u.s congress what's your perspective and these are you know professional politicians that have certainly um, cut their teeth in working through community issues. Do you feel, and, and we, we hear of some divisiveness, but do you feel like that's pretty pervasive in the state house, or is there a lot more collaboration that we don't typically hear about? I think it's a little bit of both. Certainly if you're comparing the Colorado state house to Congress, yes, it's much less contentious. Not that there isn't a lot of divisiveness, but for instance, every single year, and it's required in the state constitution, it's the only thing lawmakers are required to do in Colorado is pass a balanced budget each year. Guess what? They get that done every year. That's not something we see at the federal level. So they pass a balanced budget. It's usually bipartisan, pretty much always bipartisan. It just depends on to the degree. So they do the main thing they need to do. I can see, you know, it goes smoothly people offer amendments and everything but that's part of the process debating bills and a lot of big bills do have bipartisan support and certain issues you're just not going to get bipartisanship on you know, people have different views and that's just the way it is but it's, it's, it's one thing too that's different than congress is state lawmakers are all in the state capitol chamber together debating things in person, and that doesn't happen in Congress. They spend a lot of time in physical proximity to each other, from hearing rooms to floor debates and interacting, So, um, and we may get into it later. So it is more contentious 
increasingly contentious at the Colorado Capitol, but not what we see in Congress. Yeah. Yeah, I think we uh, can't be overstated how important that face-to-face is. Um, well, let's let's take it a, a step further and, and um, uh, dig into some of the shows. Uh, my first show of this year was called um, Freedom of Speech, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, and my guests were Brian Whiting, a, uh, a retired teacher, and Breeze Richardson, who runs Aspen Public Radio up, up in uh, Aspen, obviously. Um, and... It was interesting, you know, I, I was just interested in freedom of speech, so we did the show, but man, has that come around this year, uh, particularly as it relates to libraries. And I thought that, I, I think that the library issue that came up here locally where um, many citizens, not many actually, a handful of citizens were very upset that certain books were on the shelves and the library kind of held its ground. But I saw it as kind of a good example of how Social media encourage, encourages us to perform our perspectives instead of exploring our perspectives. So it was it was almost theater to express viewpoints instead of really digging into, um, you know, the essence of freedom of speech. And I and I think social media is a lot like polarized politics, where unfortunately a lot of times it's the theater rather than the substance. Um, and what I learned through preparing for those shows is because freedom of speech is really complicated, but the goal is sustaining a robust, uncompromising defense of free speech, but avoid conflict with an equal, inclusive, and just society. And I'm quoting Suzanne Nossel when she said that, um, when she wrote that. Um, so Benta, can you give me your perspective on how Coloradans are approaching the many issues revolving around freedom of speech and feel free to give examples on different issues? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big challenges is when does your right to free speech infringe on someone else's right? And so that is that gray area. Um, And it's one of the central arguments I've been covering the lawsuit seeking to bar former President Trump from Colorado's primary ballot, which has gotten a lot of attention Mm -hmm. uh, recently with the Colorado Supreme Court decision. When I was in the lower court hearing the five days of that uh, trial, we heard from Trump's campaign that they they argued, you know, his speech leading up to January 6th, that's protected political speech. And a lot of Coloradans who support Trump, like the, the voter I mentioned in northeastern Colorado, they firmly believe that. Um, and the court so far in Colorado has said, no, he incited an insurrection through his speech. So I think this question of how Coloradans are dealing with freedom of speech, some of it is partisan. And we're also seen it at the state house where and i think this will be a big theme next session lawmakers go to it's called the well it has the microphone the podium in the middle of the chamber and lawmakers obviously are elected by their constituents to represent them and on certain issues for instance let's just say trans rights or something a lawmaker could speak out and feel like they're representing their community maybe a conservative lawmaker or and other people could take that speech as infringing on their rights. So one thing I think I've heard quite a few lawmakers talk about is a hostile workplace at the Capitol. How do you restrict a lawmaker from speaking into the microphone? It's part of free speech. It's part of what they may feel they're elected to say on behalf of their constituents. But how does that cross into what other people may feel is a hostile work environment or infringing on their their rights. 
so for everyday Coloradans that I talk to, I haven't actually talked to a lot of people about the library issue, and I know it's popped up in local communities, but that hasn't hasn't been an issue really at the state house. I don't know if we'll see it next session. Um, I don't think that would happen at the, necessarily the state level in Colorado, and certainly with Democrats holding the majority. If there is legislation on something like that, it probably would fail in its first committee. So, but people are more likely to agree with free speech when it's <laughs> when they agree with what the person is saying. Mm-hmm. It is much more challenging when you don't agree. So going back to the the hostile workplace issue, for you as a journalist, do you feel like it is somewhat cut and dry what should be protected and what isn't, and then it's just a matter of holding to those boundaries? Or do you think it really is a gray area in those areas, and, and in this case the legislature has to work through that? I don't, I don't know that I would say that it's cut and dry. Um I think because it is subjective, some of these standards um, in terms of what what's considered hostile. So, but I also think the legislature would probably need to set up some firmer parameters, like this is how we're defining things, and here's some examples. And if you cross this line, you, you can't come to speak at the microphone for the rest of the the day or the the next couple days. Or you know, they do have that authority in terms of who is governing the floor and the leadership in the House to set those parameters if they want to. I think we're going to see a lot stronger rhetoric than even a typical year because we're heading into a presidential election year and it's an election year for a lot of the lawmakers are seeking re-election. They're planning their futures to run for higher office. So these are always the, the toughest years when we're dealing with things like speech. I, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm ignorant, but I'm certainly more naive to the difficulty of, of setting such standards and boundaries like that. And I, but I always assumed that it was cut and dry from a standpoint where if you are um, advocating for violence uh, or um, you know, speaking essentially in, in, in a violent way— um, but I suppose it can be interpreted differently. Um, so that's I, I'm hearing that's what you say is that's the task for the legislator to, legislature to set those boundaries before the session begins. Yeah, and I, I think you may be right. There could be some instances where it is more cut and dry, but uh, other instances where it's a gray area. And just look at the case of the, the Trump ballot access case. Some people think it's very cut and dry that he incited an insurrection. And other people say it's very clear that he didn't. So you can you can argue it different ways. And I think you know, I don't think we'll have a situation like that at the state capitol. But how people interpret what other people say, or the meaning behind it, or the intent, oftentimes is pretty nuanced. So I just anticipate that to come up because it was coming up at the end of last session. Frequently, I was hearing lawmakers talking about. It's kind of a bigger issue of decorum and what you can say and what you shouldn't say. And social media has changed things over the years because they will say certain things about each other on social media that they wouldn't normally say to to that person's face, but that impacts the work environment as well. Yeah, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing you say is if there was stronger rapport and better decorum, it might be easier to navigate these freedom of speech issues. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to another topic. Um, I really loved the show we did. Uh, when did we do it? In August. Uh, it was titled Guns in America, Armed or Dangerous? And my guest was Jennifer Carlson, who's written uh, several books on the topic and has done an enormous amount of research. Uh, and I thought she 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 brought a very interesting perspective that seemed to be somewhat uh, balanced and, and data-driven. Um, and um, I heard her speak at the Aspen Institute's Idea, Ideas Festival, uh, and it was on you know, gun rights and one of the guests, uh, another one of the guests that was on the show um, mentioned that this guest thought the three most important questions with respect to guns are, number one, who can own a gun? Number two, what type of gun can you have? And number three, where can you take it? And I took this as, um, well, it just struck me as those questions frame completely frames the discussion from a guns gun rights perspective when many people immersed in this issue are really talking about gun violence. And I'm not even sure those two perspectives are hearing each other, um, that it's not so much that, you know, the gun violence uh, uh, side wants to take away rights. They want to reduce violence. And I, I bet the same is true for those that are wanting to fiercely hang on to their gun rights. Um, but what what are your thoughts on on what you've seen at the state house, and do you think it's it's um, do you think that's kind of the heart of the issue of gun rights versus gun violence, or is it more complicated or, or uh, dynamic on the state level? Yeah, I mean, I think that framing we're not seeing that as much on the state level. Democrats have the majority in both chambers, and they very much are framing it as gun violence prevention. They don't really even use the phrase gun control as much anymore. And um, now, granted, when you look at the policies, it is about who can own a gun, what age, are there waiting periods, and you know various policies related to, to gun ownership. But I think that is a big part of it. I think a lot of the gun rights supporters see these democratic bills as chipping away their own rights, their personal freedoms, but not really doing anything to actually solve the underlying issue addressing gun violence or mental mm-hmm. health. So there's just a huge difference there. I, it's not bridged very easily, although there's some things that are less contentious, like reporting lost and stolen firearms. Um, and when the state initially passed extreme risk protection orders, which allows someone to petition a court to temporarily remove someone's firearm, um, if they're a danger to themselves or others, when that initially passed quite a few years ago, it had Republican support, and especially outside of the building, some of the sheriffs and law enforcement were big backers of that bill, and Democrats recently expanded that and allowed more people to file these petitions to the court. So it includes teachers and mental health professionals. So it's you know one of those deeply divided topics that I I don't see a ton of common ground, although when I talk to gun rights supporters and people on the gun violence prevention side, everyone has a goal not wanting these mass shootings, wanting to prevent 
suicide to what you. And they, the gun rights advocates feel like they're painted as um, not sympathetic to those concerns, almost. So there's, there's always a lot of anger in those hearings from all sides. And they're sad and tough hearings as well at the Capitol because you're hearing from people who've been impacted by gun violence. Hmm. A lot of personal stories. You mentioned, uh, I don't know if you call them, I, I refer to them as the red flag laws, but um, did am I understanding you that you, you don't feel like there's much, uh, especially because it's a completely Democrat uh, legislature, do you feel like there's any movement in appreciating the value where mental health and restricting access to guns is coming together, is there, or are they still as opposed as they ever were um, right now? I think there is movement on that. That's okay. kind of one area that all sides agree on, is focusing more on mental health and trying to get mental health support. And the state put a lot of money into that, but it's still not enough to kind of make sure there's enough robustness in the system and options for people to get help when they need it before things escalate, whether it's a violent situation or you know, people being housed in jails and getting mental health care in jail instead of, you know, de-escalating something so it doesn't get to that point. And I know there are a lot of lawmakers working on that in both political parties. So I, I think that that is an area where you can get some bipartisan support and some agreement on. Can you put your finger on anything that may have, that that is contributing to that progress? Is it that... Um the sides are understanding the other perspective better or are they just, um, as the violence just gotten so bad that there's just no denial or anything leading to that progress? I think there's probably just real world personal experience data, you know, just seeing what's happening, that there isn't a denial, that there's a lot of people struggling with mental health issues. And all the implications of what that means for that individual, family, friends, society, the state. You know, a lot of some issues that we've seen that we can be covering policy-wise, people don't agree with the starting point. People may not agree on a, a fact that's true. I've covered a lot of uh, stories of the fallout of the 2020 election and people who say it was stolen, um, despite the audits and the hand counts, and there's just been infinite stories from the the clerk in Mesa County, Colorado, and it kind of goes on and on. That's a much different issue, because some people say the election was stolen, and then other people have the evidence that it wasn't stolen, but you can't, can't really have a starting point there as much. And I think with the gun violence issue, especially around mental health, people agree on some sense of the starting point and what the issues are on those facts. And so that does make it easier to reach a compromise or a middle ground or have a a common goal, not on everything related to structure gun laws, but like we're saying, the mental health side, I think it's easier because people agree that there's challenges around mental health in society across the political spectrum. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, I hope we can learn from the progress that's being made in that area and, and, and how we can have more constructive dialogue moving forward. 
Um, I knew you need. I know you need to run, but uh, do you have time for one more um, topic or sure. question? Yep. Great. Yep. Um, leadership has clearly weaved its way through many shows. Uh, we did a show on uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, views from around the globe, and we had Alexandra Shafrost and Marty Manasevitz just talking about China and uh, Iran and other issues. Um, uh, they were classmates of mine in an Aspen Institute class. We talked about criminal justice. Um, I had um, Sheriff Lou Velario and uh, Tim McFlynn, who's a lifelong um, civil rights attorney. And that was quite interesting. Um, one of the guests really didn't want to be in the same studio as the other, but he he relented. And by the end of the show, they both felt like it was really constructive and they learned um, you know, what the others were doing and why. And uh, I, I was happy about that. Um, and clearly we've had other um, political discussions on the show. Um, but nowhere is the leadership uh, or is leadership's importance more evident right now to me is with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which has been going on forever, but we're recently talking about the um, Israeli-Hamas war. Um, and that was the topic of our last show, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what is it teaching us? And my guest was um, Stu Tabin. Um, so, and and I heard someone say, um, perspectives are not shirts to simply put on and take off. They are product of years of perspective. And I think no, nowhere is that more pertinent than, again, this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and when you and I spoke about this before, um, you said that this issue might be more prominent in uh, – the upcoming session than than most people will think is that true and can you give us any insight about that yeah i think so and it you know it may seem interesting just because state lawmakers obviously they aren't involved with foreign policy directly military budget anything in a tangible way policy wise related to the war between israel and hamas but we have a you know lawmakers who feel deeply passionate about the issue we've got some lawmakers with ties and connections to the region. So one lawmaker was born in Israel. She still has a lot of family there. And then another lawmaker, um, her, her parents are Palestinian. They immigrated to the U.S. And she grew up in Aurora, but she maintains a home in the West Bank. And then other Jewish lawmakers as well, and just people who are very connected to what's happening. So there's a lot of moments, even if lawmakers aren't introducing a specific bill on the issue, they can take a moment of personal privilege. They can offer amendments. I hear our lawmakers working on a pro-Israel resolution, and that's something that can have a lot of debate. We saw during a special legislative session that happened right before Thanksgiving, there were two instances of pro-Palestinian protesters being in the public gallery in the chamber. And then in one case, a lawmaker went up and participated in that protest. And because of uh, that, the lawmaker was stripped from a committee assignment. And that goes back to kind of what's considered the decorum of the chamber. If you're shouting down from the gallery, that's considered disrupting the procedures of the House chamber. So I think there will be more of that. We just had a planning meeting for the governor's state of the state address, and that will happen January 11th after the start of session. So that's when he gives his annual address on what happened the last year in Colorado from his perspective and his goals for the, the next year and next session. And 
they're already preparing for protesters to, to be in the chamber for that. We'll see if that happens. So it's hard to predict how, how things will go in next session, but I'll be very surprised if this isn't front and center, at least at the beginning of session. And the lawmakers I've talked to, I've asked, is this going to be a big topic? And they said yes. Hmm. Uh, other members, though, are frustrated, like, let's, let's just focus on the budget and education and roads and all the things we have to do that we were elected to do. But it, it's not uncommon for lawmakers to respond to, to what's going on in the world. Everyone's coming with their own backgrounds, perspectives, histories. And so there aren't really any rules that could you know, bar people from, from talking about what they want to. Certain bills, you have to stay on topic, and the person who's managing the floor can say, that's out of order, that doesn't relate to this bill. But there, there's certainly leeway, and so that's something I'll be looking out for. Um, on the Democratic side, we do see some deep divisions on that issue, certainly, more, more so than Republicans. So how that influences other policies and working relationships, we, we've already had one lawmaker, two, actually, leave the legislature in the last month. They were both had just finished their first session. They were in the second half of their first term. And one of them said it was because of the vitriol and the discourse in the state. She left the Capitol. She was one of the younger lawmakers. She's in her late 20s. And she's Jewish, but she didn't link any specific reasons for why she was leaving. So it happened right after the special session. I haven't had a chance, been able to connect with her, so I don't know why other than she said that kind of the political divisiveness at this time. And then about a month later, a second lawmaker's leaving. His primary reason was the low pay, um, and he just couldn't make it work for his family. But he also said the divisiveness made it very difficult to get things accomplished. And he's Palestinian-American as well. His dad's Palestinian. And he's a, a big advocate for peace in the region and kind of as much as people can tone down the rhetoric and really try to listen to each other. And he he wasn't seeing that happening. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine what, what uh, anyone with Israeli or Palestinian connections, uh, they must feel this issue so differently. Uh, and one of the things that came up during that show was this notion of trauma. And when trauma, um, when conflict happens, it often brings up past trauma uh, and things and the conflict becomes even more elevated because you're dealing with trauma from months, years, decades later. And I think we see that with the Israeli Hamas war right now, but maybe we're also seeing it at the state legislature where there's just this trauma from the last several years or maybe even beyond that just come up during these conflicts and uh, really speaks to the need of trying to address um, address that trauma or at least the, the uh, conflict at hand um, as, as respectfully as possible. Um, Benta, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I am uh, it was so uh, it was an honor to have you on our show. Benta Berklin is a award-winning journalist from Colorado Public Radio. She's also host of at least one podcast I know of called Purplish, which helps us uh, understand the issues in Colorado. So, Benta, thank you, and uh, please keep doing what you're doing. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I had fun and 
Thanks again. All right. Take care and safe travels. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, We're a little bit beyond the bottom of the hour. It is 4.35, and you are listening to Meet in the Middle Show on KDNK, Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guest was Benta Berklin. Uh, today's show is Meet in the Middle, reflecting on 2023 with Benta Berklin. Um, Benta had to sign off, but I thought what uh, I was really hoping to do, uh, my, uh, my wife Holly has helped me understand the value in reflecting on the year, and so I wanted to do that with our shows. I thought we had some great shows we, once a month, um, and I thought it would just make sense to uh, reflect on them. And the way Holly and I reflect on the year is we, we work backwards. We start in December and work back through January. Um, and so I thought I would do the same with the shows, um, starting with my most recent one, as I just mentioned in November, was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, what is it teaching us? And my guest was Stu Tabin. Um, I met Stu. He's a facilitator for uh, the Aspen Institute uh, Great Decisions class uh, and possibly others, Uh, but just incredibly knowledgeable about foreign policy issues. And when we talked about uh, Israel and Palestine last year, uh, I just found him to be incredibly knowledgeable. And one of the things that came up during that show, uh, Stu didn't say this. Somebody else um, said this. Um, but that that conflict was 19th century idealism driving a 20th century conflict in a 21st century world. Uh, And that really struck me of just how complicated uh, the issue is. Uh, We dove into just how different the perspectives are. Um, You know, the average Israeli, I, I would say, and obviously I'm half a world apart, is much different than, say, the Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's perspective, and likewise with Palestinians. Uh, the average age of a Palestinian is about 25 years old, and um, just totally different perspectives, and it's it's important for us to try and understand those perspectives as we understand why they made the decisions they have and in the direction they're in. We talked about leadership and how there's just been a dearth of Palestinian leadership, which has made any kind of... Um, uh, cooperation with Israel even more difficult. All the global players that sort of have their fingers in that pot. Um, so it was quite it was quite a show. But I think where Stu and I did agree, uh, we agreed on a lot of things. But uh, at the end, we agreed that it's important to hold these two narratives: that uh, one side is not right and the other is wrong. There are clearly two narratives, uh, and it's important for us to hold that for the world to help. Uh, that part of the world um, find as much peace as possible. Um, In October, uh, we talked with Gus Richardson, who is a local high school student. I was so impressed with uh, Gus's editorial about freedom of speech and uh, book banning or book discouraging uh, in our local uh, libraries. And that show was called Freedom, Sustainability, Identity, and Civility Through the Eyes of a Thoughtful High School Student. And in addition to to the book issue, um, Gus wanted to talk about freedom and uh, sustainability and, and some other things. Um, and what came out from me was this, this possibility that we have uh, a competing identity crisis happening. 
that maybe different underrepresented groups are holding resentment toward the groups getting the most attention. And we've definitely had that uh, over the last several years, um, you know, certainly since COVID, where uh, there were Black Lives Matter protests and there was a lot of attention to the LGBTQT plus community, um, you name it. Um, but we have, and, and, and now we're hearing more about immigration, well, we have been hearing a lot about immigration. And so all these different uh, underrepresented groups are saying, hey, what about us? Um, and, and I think it's just boiling uh, to the surface. Um, and it's really, um, I think, compromising our ability to um, have good constructive dialogue. Um, before that, in September, we had uh, Russ Andrews was my guest. Um, and the title was, What Does It Mean to Reach Across the Idol? The aisle, excuse me. Um, Russ is running for the third congressional district as a Republican, so he hopes to um, beat the incumbent, uh, Lauren Boebert, Congressman Lauren uh, Boebert. Um, and when reading about his um, his platform and his ideas, uh, this notion of reaching across the aisle was first and foremost on his list. And so I thought that it would be good to. Um, to dive into that. The other reason I thought it was interesting is what I've found on the show is it's become increasingly difficult to find people willing to air their opinions, especially if those opinions are not considered popular, especially in Carbondale or the KDNK listening audience. So I appreciated Russ being willing to share that perspective because I don't think it's a perspective we hear very often. Um, I think he and I disagreed on what it really means to reach across the aisle on a few issues. And that came out, um, when we talked about, um, you know, he did use the word, uh, wokeism quite a bit. Uh, he supported the idea of the success sequence. Um, and we disagreed that, uh, um, Black poverty is as easy as ending what you would call the welfare state, uh, but I think we both walked away from a uh, uh, walked away from the show understanding each other's perspective a little bit better, and why we feel the way we do. Um, uh, so that was that was quite fascinating, and um, I, again, I appreciated Russ's willingness to step on the show. As I mentioned earlier, when Benta was on uh, in August, we had. Jennifer Carlson, and if you haven't read or listened to Jennifer Carlson um, talk about guns in America, I really encourage you to do so. She's done an enormous amount of research and brings a lot of data to the discussion. Um, that show was called Guns in America, Armed or Dangerous. And, you know, my, my thought in that show was um, to really look at the debate a little differently. And as we talked a little bit ago, to me, I see there's two primary issues. There's gun rights and there's gun violence. And I do think there's a lot of intersectionality between those two issues if we're able to hear the other perspectives. Um, and I, I don't want to put words in Jennifer Carlson's mouth, but I think she does as well. And I think the data she's finding proves that there is uh, a little bit of uh, overlap there, um, which is encouraging for me. Um, so fascinating show. That was August. Uh, in July, I had uh, local superstar Heather Eggsby on the show. Um, what do tomorrow's leaders need today? 
And Heather, uh, I think she's still working with CMC, but essentially she's retired from her role um, up at Spring Valley. Uh, but she's just been involved in so many different issues. Um, she hosts her own radio show on KDNK um, and just has, um, I, I think, a, a very enlightened perspective about community and um, leadership. And that's why we brought her on. Um, we talked about in that show um, resolving how how can leaders resolve the challenges we're facing uh, and we have diminishing resources, less predictability, um, and I would argue suboptimal leadership in many different sectors when we're trying to solve these problems. And from her perspective, being in higher education for so long, I thought it would be interesting to get her take on it. Um, and um, we talked about the declining social determinants of health um, uh, which include economic stability, educational access, and inequality, and quality, excuse me, healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and the built environment, and lastly, social and community context. Um, and uh, for me, uh, I also touched on uh, my notion of three-dimensional leadership, which is power, influence, and responsibility, and just how all those things play into solving our community issues. In June, we had a special guest, um, my wife's cousin, Bill McSwain, um, and the title was, Has the Supreme Court Lost Its Way, or Is It Right on Course? And Bill McSwain was a Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, he was also the state attorney general, or one of the state attorney generals for the state of Pennsylvania, appointed by Donald Trump. Um, and we talked about um, t t trying to avoid kind of the more partisan discussions about specific cases, um, we talked about this notion of originalism and how it is so front and center with the current uh, court. Um, we talked about how the just the pure functionality of the ca the, the court um, is working, uh, what's working and what's not, um, and. Um, Again, I think when we came about it from that standpoint, uh, there was some common agreement um, between Bill and myself. Um, and and, uh, and I, again, the, the point of the show is really to, to find that common agreement to build a foundation so that when you do uh, have an area where there's less, less agreement, you can um, you have more trust and there's a stronger rapport to talk about the tough issues. I really appreciated Bill joining us. Um, in May, uh, I, I stretched out of my comfort zone and we talked about human consciousness, which is an, a topic that I'm interested in, but don't consider myself very well versed. Uh, but our guest was, uh, Nicholas Vesey, who is the, um, uh, minister for the Aspen Chapel, um, quite the, the fascinating individual, um, quite the perspective he has, um, and we explored one of the questions that I had for him was exploring this notion of divine authority and is it se is it separate from us as humans or is or are we connected to that divine authority and the difference between what Christianity says about that divine authority versus say Buddhism um, and that was um, quite fun and again you know if we talk about conflict throughout the ages. Uh, certainly religion uh, is one area where uh, conflict has been at the root of uh, 
uh, excuse me, um, religion has been at the root of a lot of that conflict. So I think understanding these notions and where they come from and, and where there can be that common agreement is, is pretty important. Um, so, but Nicholas is, you know, he's an amazing individual. And, uh, um, one of the things that I paraphrased from him was that we have evolved from primal instincts to cooperation, to community, to arts and culture, and to education. And I think by him saying that, he's saying that we are moving in the right direction. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to, to see that through the noise of everyday, the everyday challenges. But it was a fascinating show, and I, I felt like I learned quite a bit. Uh, I mentioned this show earlier, too. In April, uh, my guests were Sheriff Lou Valario and Tim McFlynn, and the title was Criminal Justice System, Where Law Enforcement and Mental Health Collide. And the idea was, uh, you know, Lou and Tim really do have opposing views on a lot of different things, whether it be gun rights or uh, incarceration, lots of things. And this was... uh, my way of trying to bring these two very opposing viewpoints together to see if there was commonality. And where I saw that happening was, again, law enforcement and mental health, they tend to collide with the criminal justice system. So kind of three separate topics, but it's where they all intersect. Um, and I think there's agreement, but there was agreement between the two of them and, and myself included, that there's a lack of investment in our nation's mental health system and the over-reliance on the criminal justice system is, um, I would say, is undeniable. And, and I really think it was, it's one of, my, uh, one of my favorite shows because I think Lou, it, I, I think he genuinely, I, I rattled off some statistics about gun ownership and suicide and domestic violence. And I think some of that was new information to Lou. And likewise with Tim, um, I don't think Tim um, fully understood all the things that Lou is doing to address mental health and improve um, essentially how his sheriff's office is addressing the challenges um, in a more progressive way. And I say progressive in just that um I think he's trying to learn from what's working and what's not with how he runs a sheriff's department, including a jail. And so I, I was really happy to bring those two together, and I felt like that was a very successful show. Um, okay, March, we talked equality versus equity. What's the big deal? And my guests were Jill Pidcock and Rob Stein. Uh, Jill manages the ARC of Glenwood Springs, which is an advocacy agency for people with disabilities. And Rob is a former superintendent for our local Roaring Fork schools. And just talking about, um, well, you know, equity versus equality and ensuring equitable access um, really anywhere, but certainly in, in the schools. Um, and we talked about affirmative action and English as a second language uh, we talked about what rules and policies did work and which didn't, even though a lot of them were well-intended, um, and w- what things that have happened in our local community that have exacerbated this inequality or unfairness, um, inaccessible design and educational systems and healthcare. Uh, again, even though there may be, uh, they maybe have been well-intentioned. Um, then uh, going back to February, 
you know, back in February, the main uh, foreign policy conflict was Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and one of my classmates from an Aspen Institute class was Alexandra Shafrost. Uh, Alexandra is both a Ukrainian and Russian citizen, and U.S. Uh, for that matter. Um, and she grew up in Ukraine. And she had a slightly different perspective and was willing to share that in the Aspen Institute class, which I thought was, and she's incredibly intelligent and understands the issues um, better than most. Um, and I also had Marty Manasevitz, who his wife is Ukrainian uh, and she grew up in Ukraine, um, but he had a slightly different perspective on that conflict. Um, we talked about the U.S.'s role in that conflict um, and and whether that's been beneficial or not. Um, they definitely uh, did not completely agree on that. Um, and to me, one of the most fascinating questions that was asked in the class, and then we talked about it in the show as well, is would, on the show I asked both of them, do you want the U.S. to be the leader, uh, the global leader, um, as it has been for the last uh, more than half century, uh, almost almost a full century, uh, and there were you know th- there were nuanced answers, um, and you know I'm I'm not always uh, our country's biggest advocate for how we handle foreign policy issues, but at the same time I also don't see um, any other single country who I would rather see. Um, at the helm, uh, so personally, so I, but I think it's a tough issue because we can all poke holes at um, our, our government, no matter who's president. Um, but the alternative to serve as a global leader um, is not quite as easy. And the first show of the year, again, as we touched on earlier in the show when Benta was on, was freedom of speech: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, it's one of my favorite titles. And because I think what we've realized as we've delved into freedom of speech over the recent years is that, boy, do we all really appreciate freedom of speech until it's oppositional to our viewpoint. And then it's easy to uh, think about putting the clamps on it, whether it's books or uh, a president's speech. Um, It's really tough. And uh, again, I, I look to this quote from Suzanne Nossel, um, in defining freedom, spe- freedom of speech as sustaining a robust, uncompromising defense of free speech. This isn't a definition. It's, it's, it's a goal, I guess. Sustaining a robust, uncompromising defense of free speech, but to avoid conflict with an equal, inclusive, and just society. And that's really the challenge. Um, and we talked about the good being the fact that we have the First Amendment and that we have freedom of speech in our country, which is amazing. So many people across the globe do not have that. Um, and we see that play out um, on a daily basis in other countries. Um, the bad is um, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. And um, the the vitriol, as Benta spoke to, um, that comes from hate speech or other things that may be protected, but still is really harmful. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, can lead to violence. And then the ugly, which to me is social media. Um, and the, the, how we've just lost control of respectful dialogue or, or, um, 
how to be able to have dialogue uh, and this the, the challenge of censoring speech or not censoring speech and how social media can do that. So um, uh, quite a fascinating show. Our guests were, uh, or my guests were Brian Whiting and Breeze Richardson. Again, um, just very knowledgeable people on the, on the subject. Um, so we'll see what, ho- what 2024 holds and what kind of shows we do. Um, I really appreciate you, you listening. Um, and you can always email me at richardson at roth.net, R-O-F as in Frank, if you have particular topics you'd like us to explore. Uh, again, as I said in the beginning of the show, the purpose is not to uh, coerce people into the middle, but rather um, understand the importance of being there from time to time to understand the perspective. Uh, quickly before we end, I wanted to talk that uh, or mention that in 2023, our guest demographics were 10 men, five women plus Benta, so six women. Uh, one was Latina. Uh, three were younger than 25. So I think I have some work to do to bring a a stronger, diverse perspective, but I'm doing my best. Uh, Again, uh, thank you for listening to Meet in the Middle, reflecting on 2023 with Benta Berklin. I'm Dan Richardson. Thanks for listening to KDNK and the show, and we'll be back in a month. Take care.